Now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our understanding to grapple with these incredibly intense words about the second coming and the judgment of this world. We pray, Father, that we would have eyes that see and ears that truly can hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got a slide going up for you of the falls there. It's not a happy story, though. I'll just give you a heads up. Three hikers, reading from a news article this last summer, three hikers lost their lives Tuesday at Yosemite National Park after ignoring warning signs, a barricade, and people's urging voices as they were swept over a 317-foot fall. After walking the steep 1.5-mile trail to the top of the waterfall, the three moved beyond the protective guardrail within 25 feet of the waterfall's edge. According to Park Ranger, quote, basically in the horseplay, one person lost his footing and he started to slide down. The second person tried to rescue him. And then the third, like dominoes, they went into the water. It's a 317-foot vertical drop over rushing water. It's not something that somebody can survive, unfortunately, he says. He goes on, it's tragic. Witnesses tell the media uh, they were only in the water a few seconds before they went over. Vernal Falls is surrounded by a metal guardrail and signs in several languages warning hikers not to cross the barricade. We saw the look on their faces. They knew they had made a tragic mistake. They got too close to the edge in spite of the very explicit signs metal guardrails, barricades, and people shouting this tragedy could have been completely avoided. Thanks. Well, Second Peter, as well as most of the Bible, is filled with good news, which is what the gospel means. Uh, but within the good news, we find many dire warnings to keep whosoever will from going over the falls in a spiritual sense of that idea. Uh, what has brought Peter to the boiling point uh, is his pastor's heart. Here, especially in the chapter that we just finished, chapter 2, uh, is the terrible consequences of fake pastors and false evangelists, spiritual leaders who are imposters who teach lies. And to use this uh, whole thing as an analogy, God's word is the barrier, the guardrail that guards men's souls from plunging into eternal destruction. The truth of the gospel is are the signs along the way in every language that warn us of the pitfalls that keep us straight on the straight and narrow path of blessing instead of the wide path that leads to destruction. And the urging voice of God and his Holy Spirit, he is Jesus, the living word who speaks 
through the written word, a voice of conscience, a voice of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the church pleading with folks to stay away from spiritual damage. So um, these false teachers with their lies uh, are messing with the signs. They're telling people uh, a bunch of lies, what they want to hear. And so what happens is, is that they take away the barriers through false teaching, through lies, through telling people what they want to hear instead of what the truth that God wishes people to know. So as a result, uh, Christians can shipwreck their faith. They can become ineffective and unproductive and worse. Folks who are seeking uh, can just miss the sign altogether and plummet to eternal ruin. I read about two foolish older teens in Ohio who, as a prank, shrink-wrapped a stop sign so that you couldn't tell it was a stop sign any longer. They're in jail, five-year sentences, both of them, because two senior citizens lost their lives on account of that prank because they couldn't see the sign. Peter's really upset the Holy Spirit through Peter saying these false teachers uh, obscure the sign that tells people stop. And so there is God's wrath and he says they will be paid back for those, that kind of harm that they cause. And so... Uh, Peter and the other apostles take time to warn the church about men whose minds are warped, whose teaching is unsound and unbiblical, whose hearts are filled with selfish ambition, greed, and lust, who are more interested in a large bank account and a large following than speaking the truth in love. So that's the context after a fiery denunciation of false teachers describing their greedy motivation their deceitful methods, and their terrible destiny. Now Peter turns his attention to his Christian readers, and he's going to go from denouncing the false teachers to encouraging the believers. They have to have encouragement because the false teachers were scoffing at the idea of the second coming and the judgment that Christ would bring. So let's walk through verses 1 through 10. That's as far as we'll get this morning. And we'll seek some insight and application for our own lives. It will divide nicely into three ideas, as you'll see, verse 1 and 2. Now, dear friends, and that word in the Greek is beloved ones. This is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so, Roman numeral number one of three points, first of all, wholesome thinking. So once again, Peter tells you the reason he's written 1 Peter and 2 Peter um, men need to be reminded. To, he wants to remind believers of the gospel truths that they already know. He's saying, look, I know that you know most everything I'm going to tell you, but you need to be reminded again. Dr. Johnson, a great quote, says, men and women more frequently require to be reminded than to be 
instructed. There's no such thing as a Christian who outgrows the need to be exhorted to live and think right before God. I mean, we get it. We all know I could ask any husband in here, tell me what it takes to make a good marriage work. And you will tell me, you'll give me a list. So <laughs> then what's the problem? Well, we need in the moment, day to day, to be reminded of the truth we already know. So Peter's saying, these words will remain long after I depart. They'll help you stay on course uh, because there are going to be contrary forces against you to pull you away from the truth. Those forces, of course, we always talk about them, our own sinful nature. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful and wicked beyond all imagination. And uh, we have to be careful about our own sinful uh, and our own deceitfulness. Also, the godless influences of the world all around us, spiritual evil. I mean, uh, the Bible talks about the devil being a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So especially the false teaching as well that comes against Christian communities. So here Peter's calling last day Christians to engage their brains, and that's what he's saying. I'm writing to remind you to stir you up to wholesome thinking, to energize and exercise their minds to their greatest capacity. One of the Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In other words, whatever controls your mind controls you. Your belief system is the rudder of the entire vessel. So what you believe really matters. It matters with eternal consequences. There's a lot on the line. So in the Greek, wholesome thinking is more than purely mental or intellectual activity. It's a discerning and applying spiritual truths into our lives. Uh, wholesome thinking was even more necessary in the end days because of what Paul tells Timothy, time is coming, when men will not put up with sound doctrine, sound teaching, instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather together a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and to uh, stories and myths. But you, he says, keep your head in all situations. Uh, that in the Greek is this calm, cool, concerted effort to align your life with God's truth. So in the last days, men are not going to want to hear the truth. And that time is now. Verse 2, Peter tells you what you're to be reminded of. And that would be the truth revealed through the Old Testament, the gospel Jesus' words and the apostles' application and divine exposition of that gospel called the New Testament. So Peter's saying, God himself speaks in the words of these scriptures, and it's his voice through them that will keep you on the straight and narrow path. Now, so that when pastors take the cross out of the gospel and replace it with a me-centered understanding that God came to give you health, wealth, and prosperity, 
There's no talk of suffering. There's no talk of sickness. There's no talk of uh, persecution. Absolutely none. The cross is lifted out. Peter says, think, 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 think. Does that sound right to you? Does that square with what Jesus said when he said, uh, if anybody would come after me, let him deny self, pick up cross, and follow. Does that sound like a prosperity message to you? And so he says, if you're engaged with your brain, you'll be able to bypass false teaching. When people have gone crazy chasing signs and wonders, you can remember. He says, think, recall, be reminded. What did Jesus say about signs and wonders? Does that ring a bell, signs and wonders? Oh, yeah, yeah. Didn't he say something? Well, look it up. You look it up. And Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation are seeking signs and wonders. I don't have a problem with God doing whatever he wants to do. And when God works, they can be signs and wonders. But when we seek them and we get crazy and we're all about them, that's a problem. He says, engage your mind. Think. It may be dramatic and exciting, but is it biblical? Think. Be reminded. When worship practices become bizarre and undignified, and you're embarrassed to invite your professional co-worker to the service because people are slithering around on the floor like snakes. He says, think, recall. What does the Bible say about this? What did the apostles say? Let everything be done decently and in order. So it may be novel. It may be, wow, look at that. There's something happening over there. But when you align it up because the gears are moving and you're not buying what you can just see and hear, but you're checking everything against the word of God, it needs to be decent and in order. So when so-called pastors say, <clears throat> excuse me, that you can have a spiritual awakening, you can be enlightened and have a relationship with this God in Christ's consciousness and live in sexual immorality, he's saying, think, be reminded, recall, come on, get this thing working. Don't, be, don't, let, don't get snookered in by somebody who lives a nice life and can't we all get along and love one another and isn't God a God of love? What does he say about sexual immorality? Do not be deceived. Those who are sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Check. Because you're thinking. You're alert. You're aware. But if you're not... You're going to buy into some of this stuff. So he says, hey, number one, I'm writing First and Second Peter so that long after I'm gone, you will be reminded about what the truth is. When people knock on your doors and say, I want to tell you about a gospel where Jesus is not God in the flesh. He's just the son of God. He's not God. When they knock on your door, stand at the mall with a little magazine that says, and both of those uh, pseudo-Christian cults, let's call them pseudo means fake. When you lift Jesus out from being God in a body, you don't have the gospel. And so you're able to be reminded, oh, yes, Jesus said, anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. 
And then do you have John chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 14. You have uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, the fullness of deity in bodily form. You have Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, just off the top of my head. Jesus equals God. I am reminded. I'm working the gears so that nobody can come up to me and say, hey, do you want to live forever in the garden of paradise? Jesus isn't God. Is that okay with you? No, it's not. Go away. All right. So exercise wisdom. Pay attention. Don't drift off. Don't spend so much time playing video games that you rot your mind and you can't think anymore. Let God's unadulterated words. <laughs> I just re I'm reacting to your reaction about the line about the uh, video games. Let God's unadulterated perfect word of truth and your sincere effort to love the truth guide you in through this minefield we call life. All right. Now, having reminded them of the importance of the truth as it's found in the scriptures, now he's going to tell them why such a reminder is urgently needed. False teachers are mocking the idea that Jesus will come again in glory. Verse 3, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this? Coming, the word there means appearance, parousia. He promised, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so, um, Roman numeral number two, willful forgetting. Two ideas here. First, the bad guys mock the whole idea of the second coming, as it's described in the Old Testament, the Gospels, and the New Testament. And second, they had no regard for moral living. And we will see, I will make a case that the two ideas are very much related. Now, Peter uses the future tense to describe what had already begun and what would be progressively more prevalent. When he says, in the last days, scoffers will come, he means they are here and they will be coming more and more. Now, the last days began when Jesus appeared. Those were the last days, according to God. So yes, we live in the last days because the last days started officially when Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 said, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. In other words, it was done. God's redemptive plan is finished in Christ. There's nothing more to do. The Old Testament points in every conceivable way to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And once he did that on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, and started the church, he's done. Last days, the clock is ticking. 
Now it's just a grace period. It's a time of amnesty. People can come in, confess their sins, and be counted as free and clear. That's the only thing that's going on. If you, if you compare what Jesus did on the cross to the ark, the ark has been built. The door is open. The church is proclaiming, come in to the cross, the ark of refuge, and be saved because judgment is coming. So it's the same idea as Noah's day. Matthew 24 and verse 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So it's done. He's done. We're in the last times. He could come. We don't need nations to do anything. We don't need Israel to do anything. We don't. We aren't waiting for a temple. We aren't waiting. Nothing. He could have come the day after Pentecost Sunday. He could have come a week later. In fact, all of the holy apostles thought it would be in their lifetime. Peter now realizes it won't be in his lifetime. But it's imminent. It's been imminent ever since the angels told the disciples, what are you staring up like, oh, he's gone forever for? This same Jesus will return in the same glorious manner you've seen him go up to heaven. So don't don't think he's going away and like, oh, there he goes. That's what the angels are trying to say there. What is Peter saying here? He's saying... Listen, in these end times, there's going to be a love for sensuality and wrongdoing and a a smug dismissal of Christ's coming. So don't be surprised or discouraged by people who make fun of the whole idea of Jesus coming again. And that makes perfect sense, that these are the people who have gone their own way and love immorality. It makes perfect sense to me. People who love to sin have a lot to lose by accepting the reality of Judgment Day. If you want to do your own thing and love sin and do things that you know in the Bible are worthy of condemnation, then we need to, if, if you don't want to repent, we need to do away with that idea that someday at the end I'll have to give an account or... Or otherwise, there'd be a lot of what we call cognitive dissonance going on. In other words, it would be really hard to look yourself in the mirror, know you're going to pay for your sins at the end, and go on that day thinking about all the ways you're going to gratify your sinful nature. That would be kind of hard to live that way. So what we're going to do, willfully forgetting, is do away with the moral accountability clause in the gospel. If I'm going to live without acknowledging God, if I'm going to do things that I know are wrong, if I want to gratify self instead of obey God, the second coming needs to go bye-bye. Michael Green, commentator, said it well. Cynicism and self-indulgence regularly go together. The greatest motivator behind the rejection of truth is the unrelenting desire to do my own thing. And verse 3 says they're going their own way instead of following God's word. So here's the line in their faulty reasoning for their disbelief. Allow me to paraphrase with an attitude. (laughs) They mock. Where is he? Is it about time for his grand appearance? Maybe he's stuck in traffic. Look, the world's always been here, buddy. 
And it's been business as usual since the dawn of time. From creation, life goes on like clockwork, and like clockwork, it always will. Well, here's their observation. A lot of years have gone by and it still hasn't happened. Therefore, it never will. Okay. Um, bottom line, really, is they scoff at the second coming at the end of history because they can't imagine the kind of change in the world and in human history of that proportion. Do you get that? There's that line of thinking. Uh, today is like yesterday. And tomorrow will be like today, and things are just going, and it's always been this way, and there's never going to be an interruption. Uh, they maintain that God's promise is unreliable, and that God's universe is a stable, unchanging system where events like the second coming just don't happen. Peter says, how ridiculous is your ridicule? And let me show you how and why. Did you forget? Did you forget about chapters 6 through 8? I hear you quoted creation. So they say, ever since creation. Aha! Uh -huh. So you acknowledge that there's a creator, that the earth and the heavens and the universe didn't always exist. So you acknowledge that part. But did you forget chapters 6, 7, and 8? About, well, let me paraphrase here. But they purposely forget that about that it was God who created the world in the first place. He separated out of the waters from the dry land, and he used those very waters to destroy the world. Through God's utterance, the world of Noah's day was destroyed, and through the same word, it will be destroyed again, only this time not by water, but by so Peter's saying they're not ignorant of facts, they're not naive, they're not lacking any information, they are willfully disobedient. And so uh, both the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Peter are going to argue from history here. Here's Jesus in Matthew 24. Listen up. For in the days of Noah, before the flood, People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They're having their parties. They're, they're getting married. Uh, they're going on honeymoons up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what was going to happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. The false teacher's assumption of an unchanging world is without warrant if you look at history. And perhaps the reason, part of the reason, God allowed the first tragedy to happen to the ancient world, that they would be judged and destroyed. He did have an ark there for anybody who was interested in being saved. Uh, is to help the contemporary world escape judgment. Now, he's saying, look at history. The world has not gone on unchanged. And here's a slide here. There's scientific evidence in the world of a worldwide flood. We're waiting on that. It's warming up. 
Now, let me give you a few of the uh, examples. Plenty of hard evidence for any scoffers today who said, oh, come on, uh, who say there's a second coming. Well, there was a first destruction of an entire world. Fossils and plants that are buried in, an, in their entirety, scientists call them polystrate. In other words, there are fossils that shouldn't be like straight up and down. So they're buried, trees are buried straight up and down, like a flood was on top of them. Uh, the second thing, the extensive layering of sediment in the strata consistent with a worldwide flood. You can look at that and say, wow, there's a lot of sediment there. Looks like there was a lot of water on top there. Fossils on top of mountain tops of sea life. So we have marine fossils found at high elevations, shellfish fossils in the Himalayas. Fact. Nobody argues that. Now, I don't think Sherpas were into seafood, and, and that's how they, you know, they, they dropped a few of their clams. Uh, you know, that it didn't happen that way. There's shellfish in the Himalayas because the Himalayas were covered with water. And so when people say, you know what, if I perish because I don't accept Jesus, then there are going to be a lot of people who perish along with me. And I say, shellfish in the Himalayas. <laughs> yes, sir. It happened once to what estimates say a billion people on the planet at the time lost their lives because they wouldn't listen. So God said, you know what? You have evidence on the earth that it is not the earth's power or science, or the force of creation alone that keeps days going unended and unbroken? Or, or what do you think? It's gravity or the orbits that are in control of this place? It's not natural law that determines that yesterday, today, and tomorrow all kind of work together. It's the one, Peter is saying, who, by his word, formed the world, put them in order, gave them gravity and laws and orbits, but he is the one sustaining and saying this is a day that will be consistent with yesterday, and when he determines it, he will say tomorrow is the last day. And your verse there says that that day <clears throat> is coming. Excuse me. So Peter pushes back in the face, thank you for the Grand Canyon tour. That's lovely. <laughs> Peter pushes back in the face of the mockers. The universe didn't always exist. God created it. Uh, number two, the world has not always gone on as business as usual. God intervened in an evil world and destroyed it. Those right with him were saved, and those at odds with him were judged. In verse 7, God has set a date for the end of human history. Those right with him will be saved. Those who are at odds with him will be destroyed. The world and everything in it came to a screeching halt once, and it's on a schedule to happen again. 
So the mockery hasn't ceased. You know, we talk about the rapture. The rapture is the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, meaning he comes and one goes, one stays. That's called the rapture. And they make fun of us. Bumper stickers, when the rapture happens, can I have your car? So I rolled down my window and I said, yes, you can. And they're like, what? And I said, you can have my car when the rapture happens. I mean, they put it on their bumper sticker. They can have my bills too. What else do you want? You drop by my house, I'll give you the address. You can stay a few days there. So you might need a shelter. And maybe you might pick up a Bible because they'd be laying around the house. And you could get a clue about where we all went because a delusion will be coming on you so strong that you will believe whatever the Antichrist explains us away. They'll buy it. It'll make sense to them. Because God said, a strong delusion will come upon the earth once we are taken away. But he says, Peter says, like a thief, it's going to come like a thief. In other words, nobody's expecting the thief. The last time any of you got robbed, it happened because you were totally clueless of the thief's arrival. He slipped in, slipped out. You got back, and you're like, what? What just happened? And that's exactly how the second coming, the rapture, will happen. That's exactly what he's talking about. Our response, of course, is he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be right with God, we beg you. Last point, but do not, verse 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So wholesome thinking for Christians, uh, deliberate forgetting for scoffers, and now Final point, patient waiting for God. So here we get God's motive in all of this time investment, and we find out he's holding out for unbelievers. Like these scoffers in every generation, he wants them not to be lost. Um, So beloved believer, he says here, Peter, here comes some ammo for you with the contemporary scoffers. He says, don't forget, you Christians, that God's time clock is different from ours. Pacific Standard Time is noon, let's say. Mountain Time, 1 p.m. Central Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Heavenly Time, 0 o'clock. He doesn't fit in time. He's outside of time. He fills time. He's the beginning and the end. He says, listen, Peter's saying, I want you to know this. He quotes from Psalm 90, 
verse 4, where it says to God, a thousand of our years is like a day to him. So what man regards as a long time, God says, are you kidding me? Uh, That's not a long time for me. I've been around since the beginning. In fact, he says, since you can't figure that out, I can say I am the beginning because your minds can't go to a beginning. Where is there a beginning? He says, it's eternally that way. And he says, that would be me. So to to say, oh, it's been 2,000 years to God, God's like, (laughs) that's a couple days. It's not a long time. In fact, it probably is a lot less if you think of 10,000 trillion years compared to 2,000 years. God is saying, please, you know, I love this writer, Barnett said, faith orients man to eternity while scoffers remain children of time. So don't let 2,000 years bother you. Secondly, not only does God have a different perspective, God has a distinct motivation. It's not slowness, but patience that delays the consummation of human history. He has vested interest in this place. He's created a race of beings. He bought and paid for them. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says that Jesus Christ is the propitiation payment for our sins, comma, Not only our sins, comma, but the sins of the entire world. He's invested in them. So they're saying, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? If he came today, you would be going through the tribulation. That's where he is. He's waiting for you to repent of your foolishness and get on board so he can save you. The very mockers are giving him grief about how long he's taking. He's holding the door, waiting for them. Come on in, because it's a long fall down those falls. God's mercy, God's grace. God is not willing, it says here, that any perish, but that everyone come to repentance. A parallel passage, 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. In Ezekiel 33.11, you should be quoting it with me by now. As I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, rather that they would turn from their evil and be saved and live. He takes no delight in it. He's holding the door open. That's what it, I mean, five years ago, if the trump of God blew, the dead in Christ were raised, and we who were alive and remain were caught up five years ago, how many of you would be left behind? Five years ago, there's probably 10 people who would have, by God's sovereign fate, sealed you in. You would have had to go through the great tribulation. Then Jesus said of that time, it is the worst thing that the earth will ever see, way worse than the flood. He said, if those days weren't shortened, not one person would survive. Those are the days he saves the church from. Five years ago, 
you who have come in in the last five years. He's saying, that is why I'm waiting. How many of you have a mother and a father who would have to go through the greatest tribulation that ever came upon the earth, or a brother, or a son, or a daughter? He's saying, that's what time's about. But in the next breath, he says, his patience and redemption is not inexhaustible. The day of the Lord, your text says, will come as a surprise to many, just as a thief slips in and out without anybody having a clue. And after that, a fiery transformation, it says in your text, the earth and everything in it shall be laid bare. Great quote about what that means here. Everything laid bare in a fiery judgment. What does that mean? It's a term that describes exposure and judgment that the all-seeing and all-knowing eye of God is now evaluating all things. The walls of earth as well as the walls of men's hearts dissolve and now everything is out in the open. The light has appeared. Nothing on earth is concealed, not in the earth, not below the earth, not above the earth and not in the deepest recesses of man's heart. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Well, not everything will be laid bare. Our sins will be covered. He said, blessed is the man or woman whose sins are covered. Psalm 32, verse 1. The word in the Hebrew is kippur, where you get Yom Kippur, the day of covering. By his blood, he covers over. He says, of your sins, I'll put them behind my back. I will remove them. I will cleanse them. I will absolve them. I will justify you. There's about a thousand ways to describe why our lives will not be laid bare because we will be with him when he comes because we have been removed. We come with him at the end in the final judgment. Everything laid bare except your sins. I like what one person said. What God has covered over, no man can uncover. No demon in hell can remind God of something he's willingly forgotten, like my sins. Jesus went to the top of Vernal Falls, handcuffed with my name and your name upon him, and he let them push him into the river. And over he went. And three days later, up he comes. And he did that so that whosoever would could escape their rightful place in that river as sinners before the living God and come instead of judgment, experience grace, mercy, and heavenly reward in eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful provision of mercy and grace. Thank you for enduring much more than Vernal Falls. 
but eternal separation from God the Father in a moment of time, the agony of six hours on a Roman cross, Father, we can only imagine what that entailed to keep us safe. Now may the spirit of truth and the living word guard us in our walk with God, that we are always stimulated to wholesome thinking, Father, and to remember your great love and to put our trust in you. In Christ's name, amen.